You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Life is very short and there is so much to be caught. Let us Support for the Projection Booth Podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me, of course, Mr. Mike White. From inside the antennas, the birds fly away. Yeah, I don't know what that means either. Also joining us this week is our good friend, Israeli film subtitler and researcher, Yaniv Edelstein. How are you, sir? Hi there, folks. How are you doing? This week, just in time for the new year, we're talking about the 1973 comedy Big Gus, What's the Fuss? Directed by... Amy Artis and Lloyd Kaufman. The film was produced by the creator and director of The Toxic Avenger years before he did those films, but just a year before he founded Troma, the house that Toxie built. Big Gus, also known, I think, as a better title, Schwartz the Brave Detective, tells the tale of a bumbling detective, Schwartz, and his partner, who have been retained by a mother and her adult son to look into the private afternoons of the son's wife. Along the way, the bumbling detectives not only have to deal with the sneaky wife and her doctor lover, but a group of mobsters that rough them up, and their own family life as well. Now, if you're a trauma fan, Big Gus has always been something of legend. It was locked in the vaults for years, never officially released on video and DVD, formally, and has been called by the co-creator, Lloyd Kaufman, the film that, quote, did more damage to the Jewish people than Mein Kampf. Well, I think that's hyperbole. We'll hear from Lloyd as to why he finds the film still a sore spot in his 40-plus year career. So, Yaniv is our guest over there in Tel Aviv. When was the first time you heard of Big Gus, saw Big Gus, and what did you think on your first viewing? Um, well, I heard it from you guys. I'm not ashamed to say, you know, I'm not a film completist. Uh, maybe it was a title that I heard about, but I never actually watched it. Um, but also I always just like watching films with people. So as soon as you guys told me about it, I didn't want to watch it myself. I just, uh, caught a minute or two and said, okay, let's arrange a screening. I, uh, you know, advertised it on Facebook, got some people together, screen and projector and, uh, <laughs> gave people advance warning of what they're going to see. And, uh, we just sat there and watched it uh, about a week or 10 days ago. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> what can I say? Uh, not a great screening, a few walkouts, rough going, <laughs> rough going. We, are we going to talk about this movie, uh, about its, its cinematic merits? Oh, sure. 
Yeah, actually, see, the reason why I wanted to get you on this episode is we had you on the American Hippie in Israel episode, and that we loved because we thought it was so surreal and strange. And coming across another Israeli film, and one that was connected to our good friend Lloyd Kaufman over at Troma, I thought, here's an opportunity to get you to take a look at it and tell us what you think. Because obviously, you're in Israel, or not, you know more about Israel, obviously, than we do. So just kind of thought, hey, put uh, those two together and see how it rolls. Right, but I think a bad movie is just a bad movie, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the universal language. Of suckiness. So, so yeah, tell us. A, so I, I think us. everybody can, can agree it's a terrible movie, right? I mean, not, not least of which Lloyd Kaufman. Yeah, but I think that Mein Kampf thing is a little, a little <laughs> bit much. Uh, yeah, even though it's a terrific quote. I mean, if you want to get people to come watch it, all you have to do is tell them about that quote. And they're like, I'm in. I want to see this. Then they don't know what they signed up for. I didn't find it terrible. I mean, I've seen much worse. Uh, much, much worse. It, would, it was, uh, it's kind of sort of worked at the beginning. Uh, it's, it kind of, I mean, it had a structure. It had some characters. Actually, it had some characters with some backstory. It seemed like something was happening. But then it completely falls apart later. It just becomes like a Benny Hill comedy, slamming doors farce kind of thing. Uh, I, I think Lloyd Kaufman wrote the original script and then it was taken from him and bastardized. So it kind of feels like a movie that originally was going to be about something uh, because there's a plot there. You know, there's a private detective and he has an apprentice. They're hired. They're spying on this cheating wife and stuff is happening. And then they have a backstory where they used to be cops in the, uh, you know, in the police together. They got t- kicked out. There's some dark secrets there. So it's like a good framework that could be either a comedy or a serious movie. I mean, there, there's some meat there. Um, but at least for me, I don't know, it made so little sense going forward. Maybe you guys understood it better. Um, do we want to talk about the plot and what happens? Sure. Yeah. I uh, mean, I think the plot's pretty basic. I mean, as we said, it's, it's basic just... at first, but then, then as, as I recall, they talk about the reasons that way back when they left the police or got kicked out of the police. And it had to do with this guy called Max Ashvedi, like Swedish Max. And he's this uh, big crook that they caught, but they let him go. And then he enters the plot as a guy in the present day. So there's some kind of backstory there, but you have, and he's working with them, for them. Why is he working for them? Uh, uh, it, it becomes very convoluted. At some point, you have no idea who's ch- tailing who, who's paying who, who's telling what to whom behind whose back. Uh, I don't know. At least for me, it became pretty convoluted, and it's, and it's also not an aid of much. I don't know. He's it, it's a private detective tailing a, a cheating wife, uh, but he's going to these insane lengths. Just even though it's just a job that he's paid for, nobody's life is at stake. It's just a cheating wife. I don't know. The, <laughs> I'm not the sure. Only, the only thing I got was that he was so broken he needed the money. Because there's this one scene where it's like, you know, I can't screw up this job. I really need the money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he says he put his house in Hawk, I think. Yeah, okay, yeah, it's a, like a basic motivation, right? He needs the money, fine, but... Uh, but you're right, when Max the Swede shows up, he's given very little screen time, and we really don't ever get to know the guy, and necessarily we don't get to know why uh, the main guy, why Schwartz really kind of went out on a limb to help him out. I mean, I think like his partner just says, oh, he saw the good in him, and that was about it, and I was like, Oh, okay, and then there there was that dinner scene. <laughs> oh God, where there's that woman who's dressed up as a maid for it, and 
had she been in the movie before no, that? Cause no, she just appears and you just assume she's the maid. Right, and then you find out that she's working for Schwartz, and it's like, what? Right, <laughs> okay. and also Simcha, the, the, the apprentice guy, is making noises from the next room, and, and Schwartz just says, oh, that's just my baby, I'll go, I'll go quiet the baby, and he goes in, and it's him pretending to be a baby in the next room, on purpose. And Though not dressed up like a baby. He's not, that no, no, he's fun. doing an audio imitation of a baby. Yeah, to, not a very good one. No, a terrible one. To add credence to his, to his cover? I don't know. <laughs> but the film does have some really odd tangents. Like, there's that. There's also the thing with, for some reason, we get five minutes with Max, the Swede, and some woman, where they walk around, and it's like a music video. And they go out to dinner oh, yeah. and all that. Um, yeah. yeah, it reminded me of last week's film, that scene when Jonathan and, and Brenda, you know, they have that love montage. It was very much like that. Yeah. And um, and then there was also, um, God, there was like another sort of odd sequence that didn't make any sense. I can't think of it off the top of my head. But the, the, the whole thing with Max the Swede, I thought when he showed up is, man, what a great helmet of hair. <laughs> it is plastic. If someone touched it, it would just like crack and fall right off his head. It's amazing. Yeah, it's one he's a famous big star. I mean, it's a very famous hairpiece. Uh very famous star of stage and screen and uh, and uh, a famous singer as well. Uh, actually, just a lot of the cast him, but just the hair right? cast. Just him. Really? <laughs> so 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 this isn't uh, you're not joking. This really is a big cast. Are they big now or were they big then or what? Uh, they're big then and now, to tell you the truth. I mean, I mean, I think they poured some money into this thing, into this dog. Uh, it's top talent, top to bottom. All the people in it are all big, big stars. Some of them made uh, other huge films. About half of them are still alive. Um, Sassy Keshet is the guy with the... Allegedly, I don't want to disparage the guy. Maybe it's his real hair. I, I'm not, you know, I don't want to offend anyone. He's still alive. Um... The two main characters, they passed away. Um, what else can I tell you? Actually, the most, the biggest star in the movie is a guy with a small part, completely unrelated to anything, but it's Uri Zohar, and he's the guy, very late in the film, when it just becomes a hotel farce, these two Polish actors show up. Oh, uh, right, yeah. That's, oh, that's the scene I was talking about, yeah, where they show up, that, and they're like giving the bell, the uh, not the bellman, the, uh, the desk clerk a hard time, and then they right. go upstairs, and you think it's going to be some sort of like fetish sex scene, but it's them like running lines and dressed up funny, and yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So he's a great performer. He has no material to work with, but he's really funny. He was actually a director, also directed uh, some very uh, notable films. Um, yeah, I, I think what it looks like, what it feels like to me, again, because I was sort of engaged in the first part of the movie, and it just feels like it was taken out of Lloyd Kaufman's hands, or, and, and, and other people said, no, 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 we need, we need more stars, more comedy, and then they just throw in scenes that have nothing to do with anything, with completely new characters. I think they're just there, just in hopes of attracting an audience. Um, the love, you know, the lovers with that montage you said, and Uri Zohar and, the, and being the the Polish the Polish theater actors. And the other thing is that I think also for purely uh, economic reasons, they they had to make it a G-rated film, so there's no sex or nudity or anything in it. So uh, they couldn't even have it a real sex farce. It's just all misunderstandings and double entendres. And even the cheating wife isn't technically a cheating wife because all you ever see her doing is saying, oh, no, I, I don't feel like it. I can feel my husband somewhere around here. Um, 
so yeah, but anyway, it's a huge cast of, of comic actors. Uh, Dubigal is the scrawny, the weird-looking guy who does the Godfather parody. Oh my goodness. Which, which that, I thought, I go, I go, that is totally of the time. It was like someone saw the Godfather and said, hey, let's put the Godfather, like put a riff of the Godfather in this thing. And it makes zero. I have no idea why they call him, why he's there. He's there with his two big goons. Why are they there? And they go and they just open wrong doors all the time and get chased around in a hospital. I don't know. I really don't know. I'm at a loss. And then there, um, it, it almost seems like this all's well that ends well kind of thing with the ending where they show, they're at the hotel. They basically crash someone's wedding. And it's like, oh, everything's yeah. okay because the husband and wife get back together and then let's all jump in the pool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. They, they, they like, I don't, I think it's supposed to be funny. There's like a chase and then people just start jumping in the pool. And I think you're supposed to laugh. I don't know. The, <laughs> I thought you meant the actual ending, the very, very end where oh. all of a sudden they're part of the police band, which also, right. there's a marching band and they're there in the marching band and then credits roll. Yeah. So I guess they went back to the police as musicians. Yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. I just I just went with it. You know, I just I just let it wash over me. I went with it. And for me the reason to watch it was because it's so hated. Because when it, when I read Lloyd's book, All I Need to Know About Filmmaking I Learned from the Toxic Avenger, back like 15 years ago when I first met him, he talked about this thing as I said about the Mein Kampf quote and just how horrible it was. And there was no way to see it at the time because this was DVD was just coming in. This was VHS, you know, streaming video is still years out. And it sounded so compelling as something you'd want to see because it's like, this guy is that upset about it. There must, there must be something in this thing, you know, or maybe not, but it just it was compelling. And right. we, uh, we know what kind of stuff he's putting out. So if he <laughs> thinks this is a bad movie. Yeah, and, and I but it turns that out I mean, Dark Secret is is yeah that it's just a G. I think the fact that it's G rated is the most shameful thing to him. I think the fact that it's G rated, he feels like he sold out uh, his, his principles because he wants to make trashy, trashy, explicit, hardcore stuff, and he was forced or agreed to do a G rated thing, and he's been ashamed of it all his life. Well, I mean, in that period's interesting when you look at sort of Lloyd's work, like a few years before. He did a film that I really like called The Battle of Love's Return, which is sort of this um, mix of like an underground New York film with sort of Woody Allen. He was, you know, in his early, late 20s, something like that. And he actually plays the lead in it. It's, it's, it's a fabulous little film. If you get a chance, check it out. It's really good. But at this time, he did this with a guy who, as you hear in the interview, and if you read, he said that. The, the co-producer was like, oh, we'll do this in Israel and it'll be huge. You know, this is the exact kind of thing that the Israelis want. And then we can show it in synagogues around the country in the United States and we'll make our money back and it'll be great. So, and at the same time, he was starting to get into maybe not adult film as we know it, you know, hardcore sex films, but he was making something like sugar cookies that he was producing. So, and we talked about sugar cookies a little bit with Mary Warnoff on our Eating Raul episode. So, and that was kind of a failure. So, so the thing is, is he was doing this odd mix of stuff where 
Lloyd wasn't quite the schlockmeister that people have come to, I guess, expect or appreciate out of him in, in the years that have gone by. So it, in this period, I think he was still trying to find his footing. He had just come off working with John Avildsen, and he would still, like two years later, work on Avildsen's biggest film, which would be Rocky. So he's still in this period where trauma isn't trauma yet. He's still kind of doing all these odd things. And it, and from the interview, like you said, uh, listening to the interview, it kind of seems like he just didn't have enough will to go, no, this is my money. This is my film. I'm going to do it my way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, it's a film that uh, I didn't hear anybody say that it was anything more or less than a money-making venture. They said we can so show it at synagogues. They said we'll put lots of Israeli stars in it and get everybody in Israel to watch it. They said, um, you know, we'll make it G-rated and everybody will just go see it. Uh, so I don't feel anybody's real heart and soul was in this one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the, it's just the, true. The, the one thing that drove me nuts with this movie in the first reel, I'd say in the first 15 minutes, you hear that song like five times. Oh, God. Well, I'm, I'm used to that with a hippie movie. Oh, American Hippie, the same song goes on for half, oh, for the entire movie, it's the same song all the time. I just sort of feel like it was, we paid for this song, so we're going to keep using it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the guy doing the music is also a big music star, by the way. Really? Yeah, the guy singing it and and he wrote it as well. Yeah. So who's that? And the other, Eagle Bashan, also still alive and still a very famous, you know, singer and everything. And the other thing is that also maybe it's easier for me to notice as an Israeli person, but it's full of uh, product like product placement. Um, if you look at the credits at the end, you know, with all the thanks to all the all the companies that uh, you know. And, and, you, and you see all the thank yous and you see you all of a sudden make the connection to all the stuff you saw during the film. So the hotel where they filmed everything is referred to by name and it's a, probably an actual hotel from back then. You see, you look at, uh, it says thanks to Motorola. There's a close-up of a little Motorola thing in the, in the car, like the surveillance equipment. Um, I'm sure there was a lot of commercial consideration in this movie. They got some sponsors. Oh, and the clothing store where they have uh, some... Some um, slapsticks chase around the, around the clothing store. That's also like big time product placement with a logo inside the store. Yeah, there are definitely hijinks aplenty in this film. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, off the screen, I don't know what happened. I don't know if they left in a huff during the filming or if they stuck around all the way through. But it seems that he felt cheated by the time it was it was done with. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the co-writer, co-director, and co-producer of Big Gus, What's the Fuss, Lloyd Kaufman. They're 12 miles of bad road, and now they have a microphone and their own show. It's the Daily Grindhouse Podcast, the official podcast of dailygrindhouse.com. Starring Gene. You tell that bitch who sent you here. How sorry I am, I can no longer be her friend. And the man called Perry. I'm the one that killed Monday and whooped Tuesday and put Wins in the hospital. All the birds did a tell five did not the birds, Sarah Jones, son. Reviewing the hits and the hidden from the world of exploitation, cinema, and beyond. 
featuring exclusive cast and crew interviews. Past guests include John Carpenter, Robert Forster, Brian Trenchard-Smith, but still no Steve Gutenberg. <clears throat> well, uh, we'll get him someday. We promise. I mean, we promise. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast, available on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, Podomatic, and of course at dailygrindhouse.com slash podcasts. The Daily Grindhouse Podcast. Tough films for the rough crowd. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. It was a childhood corrupted by endless hours of VHS rentals. We're sick to manage it. You'd love it. In his most formative years, he had seen it all. I can handle anything. Action. <laughs> Karate is not to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice. Horror. <laughs> and romance. Now, he's decided it's time to go back for just one more adventure. Humans are such easy prey. Noel Miller presents You're the problem, you little shit! The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Join me, Noel Mellor, as each month I take an in-depth look at one movie from my collection of ex-rental 80s VHS classics and speak to one or two of the people involved with making them about what the format means to them. The Adventures in VHS Podcast. Thank you. Have a nice day. Download today from iTunes by searching for Adventures in VHS or visit adventuresinvhs.com. You know, I was looking for a little excitement. But I was worried about privacy. And then I found out about Vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women. And men. And couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other .coms make their money by selling your information, Vibrators.com never has. And never will. And when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order. That's Vibrators.com. Get a little excitement in your life. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resent at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. How you been? I'm so sorry. We uh, we're filming volume two of uh, of your favorite film, uh, Return to Newcomb High. So uh, uh, we got totally screwed up, and unfortunately, I was irresponsible. I'm really sorry. No, that's fine. You know, we're old friends. It's okay, Lloyd. I've known you, you know, 15 years. It's okay. That is very true. Um, <laughs> no, it's okay. Like I said, I'm just glad to hear from you. It's always nice to hear your voice. I haven't talked to you in a while. 
Yep, it's great to, to hear you and see a photo of you uh, and that uh, beautiful, feline uh, <laughs> good uh, character you're with. Yeah, and you know, I, nice photo there, you and Pat. So, I, I hope uh, I hope your family's doing well. Yeah, everybody's fine. Thank you very much, Robert. Yeah. Excellent. So, um, so not to extend your night too much longer. I guess we'll just get into it. You know. Um, sure. We we have a friend who is um, in Israel, and he does a lot of subtitling for American film, and he kind of studies Israeli film, and he was the guy responsible for getting that American Hippie in Israel film put back out a few years ago. Uh-huh. And, and um, so I wanted to invite him on to talk about uh, Big Gus, because I remember when I got your book... Uh, you said that it was like the biggest failure ever and it did more damage to the Jewish people than Mein Kampf. And I was just yes. wondering if you were just being funny or do you actually feel that, that it really was the case? It really was the case and more. You know, could you just kind of talk about that? Like, how did this this film come together? Why did it come together? The big Gus, what's the fuss? In Hebrew, it's Chabalash Ha'amit Schwartz. Uh, I was uh, a, a stupid uh, graduate of Yale, and uh, unfortunately, I met two guys who were a bit older than I, who uh, convinced me that they knew what I did not know, and that they uh, were going to um, make us uh, a lot of money. All we had to do was raise the budget for uh, a movie. And uh, we would make it in Israel. And in Israel, every Israeli saw every Israeli movie eight times. And uh, we would make an Israeli negative and, uh, and an English language negative, a Hebrew negative. We would have two negatives, one in Hebrew, one in English, and we can't fail. And all we had to do was come with the money. And then Menachem Golan and uh, the wonderful people of Israel would do all the rest and we'd all be rich. And unfortunately, it didn't turn out that way. It turned out that the movie is probably the worst movie ever made. And uh, we, uh, Andy Lack, by the way, Andy Lack, who became uh, head of uh, CBS News and then uh, head of Sony Music and uh, a major player who was my childhood friend, uh, and Michael Herz, my partner, um, were the other suckers who went into this thing and... uh, we unfortunately uh, kind of uh, had it. Uh, uh, I think it was basically hijacked from us and uh, became a piece of crap. I mean, when you first started the idea, I mean, like writing the script and stuff like that. Do you think it was a solid piece then, or did it get kind of lost in the editing? Well, and and Andrew Lack thought we had a pretty decent script, but uh, because of the Israeli. Uh, uh, Better, the, the Israelis knew better, and uh, they rewrote it, and um, they um, made a piece of shit out of it. And, and we went along with it. We stupidly didn't fight, and uh, that was a good lesson. But unfortunately, I had a lot of my childhood uh, friends in it, and Yale friends in it, and uh, um, and uh, that was, you know, it was very hard to go back and ask people to invest in a movie that I was involved in after Big Gus, What's the Fuss? Because not only did it lose every dime, but it also sucked. And um, and we got 
we got rat fucked every possible way, including including that the negative is still in Israel. We paid for it. It's our negative. We never even got it. Uh, I went over there um, to try to get it and uh, got a lot of double talk. Uh, we just got totally, uh, not that the negative's worth anything, but uh, it, it was a bad experience. And uh, um, I am not too sympathetic when they come a call and to support the Israeli bonds. I say I gave it the office. In fact, I bought a piece of real estate over there and, and got fucked again. I bought a little piece of real estate and, uh, and I had a, a lawyer involved. And it turned out that I didn't really own the little piece of real estate. I owned uh, uh, some kind of a limited partnership. And when the piece of real estate became valuable, they could buy me out. So I held it for 10 years uh, uh, and they bought me out and I kind of broke even. And apparently it's worth a lot of money. You know, as I got rat fucked uh, in every possible way, as did Michael Hers, as did Andy Lack, as did the investors that we, the American cash that we brought to the deal. I mean, this was a really non, very unpleasant experience. And, um, uh, you know, normally I don't talk about it. And, of course, the people at Troma love to, to put the big Gus what the fuss. We have one shitty uh, VHS of it, and they put it up online, so... If somebody wants to see it, I think it's on the Troma YouTube, uh, the Troma YouTube uh, movie channel. I think it's there for free. And I know that it's an Easter egg in certain Troma DVDs like Make Your Own Damn Movie DVD box set. I think it's a Easter egg in there and it's a, uh, a cautionary tale of exactly what not to do if you're a young person who've come out of a decent school who has some contacts with money. Uh, do not bring your money to Israel and make a movie. Make the bastards over there put up some cash also. Yeah, that was the thing. I remember when uh, your book came out and I read the, the chapter that talked about this and it wasn't released. Like I couldn't see it. And then I actually bought a download of it from the Troma store about a year ago just because I was so interested to see it. I think I paid a buck or three bucks or something like that. And I thought that this may end up being your, you know, the day the clown cried, you know, kind of thing that you were just going to keep it in the vault. And no one's ever going to see this. And I was just wondering, you know, why you decided to allow it to go out. I did not decide it to go out. I don't want it to go out. But the wonderful people who work for Troma think it's hilarious to do anything they can to humiliate me. They also put up the Morton Downey show where I got the shit kicked out of me by a big Big, uh, g big uh, hoods, uh, security, you know, big uh, beefy security guys. They thought that was funny too. These are the wonderful people who work at Troma. Anything they can do to humiliate me. I'm, I'm sorry, you know, because you know, I, I love you. I have a deep respect for you. I always have, you know. In the well, you're the only one. In, well. I don't work with you day to day. Maybe that's part of the reason. But, lucky. I, but I've always, you know, in the almost 20 years that I've known you, I've always had a great respect for you. And I, I can't believe that people would do that to kind of uh, get back at you in some way. Can you imagine what they do, the employees of Troma? Anything to ridicule me. Anything to make me look foolish. Go look at the Morton Downey thing. They put that up, you know. Anything, right? And Big Gus. How, what a terrible, that, that's a horrible movie. Well, you know, I don't. And it's G-rated. It's G-rated. It's a family-oriented movie. It's disgraceful. Well, what can you do? At any rate, 
uh, we learned a lot. You know, it's a good, it's a cautionary tale for young people who are starting out. Uh, stay away from, well, <laughs> just <laughs> keep control of your movies. I was going to say stay away from Israel, but that's not fair. Well, I was going to say that because, you know, between the film and the real estate, it doesn't seem like, you know, for, for you know, guy of your background, uh, Jewish background, you know, you think you'd do well over there. I bought a. I bought my. I also was engaged to my wife, and I. I bought a. Uh, what I thought was an emerald ring, uh, uh, for my wife over there on Dizengoff at a place that was recommended to me, and the thing turned out to be fake. Uh, so that uh, it, it was a one one thing after another. So uh, fuck them. Well, you know, we we want to talk about positive things that are happening. You know, coming up. In 2014 is the 40th anniversary of trauma, and uh, just wanted to ask you, you know, looking back over that time, you know, how do you feel about, you know, your company hitting uh, four decades? Well, Michael Hers and I are very proud of that, and we are very grateful to our fans and to people like you, Robert, who have seen the the uh, the um, validity of what trauma has been doing over the years, and uh, uh, you know, in terms of the history of cinema there has never been an independent movie studio that uh, has survived and uh, prospered for 40 years and uh, we are proud of that fact and we acknowledge our fans who uh, made it all possible we wouldn't be here without our uh, our fans who keep us uh, alive it sounded a little bit like it from the discussion on big gus but i was going to ask you like what did you learn in the early days that you think still holds true for you 40 years on do not listen to people who might be older than you who claim that they have more experience than you. If you have uh, the uh, financing, you control, you must control your art. Don't let them, uh, you know, if you're going to get involved with people, make them put up money. If you're going to put up money, you make them put up money. And the best thing is to have nobody uh, interfering with whatever it is your art is. You should have 100% control over it. And, and I should have known better. I made the mistake twice. I had an older director on Sugar Cookies. I should have directed the movie. Uh, we managed to make the only X-rated film in history that lost money, namely Sugar Cookies. Today, it's a soft R. It's a, it's a mild R-rated movie, but in its day, it was an X-rated movie. I brought in Oliver Stone. I brought in my Yale uh, friend, Gerard Glenn. Uh, I brought in all these people again to raise, you know, we put up the money and unfortunately we left it to an older guy to direct and it, it became, it, somehow it became a, a flop and um, I did it twice. <laughs> Andy Lack and Michael Herz and I relied on these Israeli guys and uh, we ended up with a mess and we should have just controlled it ourselves. If we were putting up the money, which we were, we should have just said, who cares how old they are? Who cares how experienced they are? Who cares? We're going to control it. We're going to make it. And tough shit. We'll, we'll go and find the so-called services. We'll find the laboratory. Uh, we'll find the. Uh, we'll find our own our own shitheads. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. what do we know? You know, we didn't know. We listened to people. That's the thing about the movie business. You know, with all the Yale in, uh, University experience and all the all of the civilized uh, uh, experiences that we had, uh, you, we didn't have the street smarts that the um, people whose uh, hands were in our pockets 
and whose egos were uh, running wild, uh, we, 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 were, we were slickered. And, uh, you know, the movie industry has a lot of those people. You definitely feel that that's, that's the, the one lesson you've learned in the early days that, that helps you uh, moving on, moving forward, and some advice that you'd give to young filmmakers. Yes, I would give the advice to young filmmakers, don't compromise, do what you believe in. But also, if you, in our case, we raised the money for two movies, and uh, in both cases, the movies kind of sucked. And um, we listened to people who uh, were supposedly older and more experienced, and they were uh, without talent. And we were stupid. We shouldn't have. You know, you've always been, in the time I've known you, celebrated the you know the big number anniversaries for the company. And I was just wondering if... By the way... I don't mean to interrupt you, but sure. Oliver Stone, Oliver Stone uh, was a childhood friend, and he raised money for Sugar Cookies, and he was telling me all along that I should direct the movie, that why was I letting these older guys, you know, these people who we didn't know, who, who really didn't seem to have much, why was I letting them take it over? And he was right. And, uh, and I stupidly went on to Israel. He, he did a movie called Seizure, with uh, my Yale uh, classmate and some of the other people involved in sugar cookies, and I should have stayed with him instead of going to Israel. But uh, and, and Michael Hers also, but we stupidly made the wrong choice, and I regret it. You know, obviously uh, uh, Oliver was talented, and we knew he was talented, and still I went with the uh, the Israelis. And uh, how stupid was I? Well, like I said, I I feel bad for for bringing this stuff up and making you feel bad about it. I just thought maybe, of you know, some good stories, some lessons to learn and things like well, that. Well, the lesson is uh, if, you're, if you're bringing in the money, you better control it. And, and, and even if you're not bringing in the money, uh, you should, uh, if, you, if you're a filmmaker, you ought to be totally in control and uh, uh, abide by uh, the auteur theory, which says that the director is the author of the film and uh, don't listen to anybody. Except for Robert St. Mary, of course. No, don't listen to a me. Wise and, a wise and a wonderful person. <laughs> I might be a wonderful person, but uh, don't listen to me when it comes to that stuff. You also have an excellent, uh, you've got an excellent uh, uh, radio voice, too, you know. Well, thank you, sir. You know, you've always been a great supporter. That's what I've always loved about my, you know, my time knowing you and being involved with trauma. It's, it's always been a great source of support and friendship and, well, and well may that. I suggest uh, uh, that perhaps you uh, are you still in the Detroit area no actually I moved um, I got Colorado sick. yeah I'm in Colorado now oh well why don't you find a movie theater that wants to play Return to Newcomb High Volume 1 uh, and um, maybe I can come out there and we could have a beautiful reunion uh, you know I would I would definitely like to do that where, where are you in Colorado? I can't remember. I'm in Aspen. Oh shit! Uh, well, why don't why don't we find a theater there, and uh, you know we could do like I could do a maybe a, a come to the theater, you know, show the movie, uh, Return to Newcomb High Volume One. You curate it, and uh, maybe there's a you know a, a video store, a DVD store. I could sign some books and DVDs, and may and make a little uh, event out of it. Sounds good. Actually, I'm, I've been working and uh, talking with the film festival here, so there might be a way to tie it in in that way. Oh, terrific. Yeah. Yeah. It's our 40th year, too. 
well, next year we'll have volume two. Volume two will have it. Uh, Return to Nukem High volume two will be ready for the 2014 Cannes Film Festival. You've always been big on celebrating the anniversaries of the, the company, you know, and with good reason, as you said. It's it's rare to have a, a company last uh, as long as Troma has, over 40 years. Is there any plans for something special come 2014? Uh, no, because we the only <laughs> the only plan is probably to go out of business. We have no money, and uh, we're totally economically blacklisted. So uh, we uh, we we have absolutely no ability to do anything. In a fair world, we would be uh, fetid, uh, but uh, New York, even New York City, is. Uh, done nothing so uh you know we're deep in the underground deep in the deep in the in the deep into the reeds of the swamp we've been in new york for 40 years we own a building we we have a payroll we've been making movies in new york city we don't even get invited to the mayor's so-called movie industry cocktail party cannibal the musical has never been on television citizen Toxie. The Toxic Avenger Part 4, which sold more DVDs than Cannibal the Musical by Trey Parker. Neither of those two movies has ever been on uh, TV, <clears throat> even though they sold half a million home video units, as they call them. Uh, we're, we're blacklisted economically, not for censorship, just because we're independent. And when I met you, that was, you know, you were banging the drum then, almost, you know, yeah, 20 years ago. And has it gotten right. worse? Yes, it's gotten worse, of course. And that's why there are no independent movie studios that have any longevity. It's not because they're making bad movies. It's because they can't compete against a fixed game. And uh, the Rupert Murdochs of the world and the Sony and the Disneys are down in Washington fixing the game. So uh, it's impossible for the independent, uh, unless the independent is a vassal of uh, one of the big conglomerates, uh, it is impossible to uh, to uh, make any money. The only reason Troma is still around is is uh, we have fans who uh, manage to buy our DVDs or whatever, support us in getting the word out to to the few theaters left to play our movies, and uh, uh, we're still uh, able to uh, pay meet our payroll, which is smaller than it was 20 years ago. Of course, we only have about 10 people who work for us. Speaking of the fans, for the 40th anniversary, what would help Troma and continue independent film and independent art, in your mind? Well, the fans should uh, get uh, uh, Return to Newcomb High into their local movie theaters and uh, and uh, get the word out. Maybe, maybe then the home video will succeed. I don't know. I honestly, I don't know. I don't know what can be done. When you talk about the possibility of, of closing up shop, I mean, in the time I've known you, you've said it a few times, but, I mean, do you honestly feel that you may be nearing the end? Yeah, without a doubt. Any Anyone who didn't love movies the way Michael Hurst and I do would close up shop. We haven't had a paycheck for seven years. We've been feeding the kitty. It's only because our fans buy our movies and support us. You know, they uh, they put up uh, some of the money for Occupy Can on because of crowdsourcing, uh, that uh, Kevin the Wonder Duck uh, was paid for by, who, who's one of the stars of Return to Nukemai, was paid for by our fans. Uh, and the fans go out there and uh, 
buy our movies. It's only because of them that we keep the doors open. We're a cult movie studio. We've got nothing on television. TV is where the uh, cable TV is where the real profit is. And we haven't had anything on cable TV for 25 years. Not even Cannibal the Musical or Citizen Toxie or Poultry Guys, even though those movies have sold uh, shitloads of uh, DVDs, like 500,000 DVDs. Do the streaming services help at all? You know, the Netflix, things like that? Oh, Netflix uh, pays nothing, and they are going mainstream. And they're making their own uh, billion dollar, they're spending billions of dollars on their own content, and they don't uh, support us. We supported them when Netflix began. We were the first movie studio to support them. But once they got going, they shut us out and went with uh, the big guys. You know, last time we talked to you, you were just readying uh, Return to Newcomb High Volume 1 and just wanted to know how is it going, how are the screenings and the reaction been? Well, the only uh, anecdotal experience we've had with the public was at Fantasia, in, uh, which is a wonderful film festival in Montreal. They showed it at midnight uh, and sold tickets, uh, and the theater had about 800 seats. Every seat was filled at midnight with no advertising. Uh, that's the, and the, or, you know, the audience loved it. That's the only experience we've had so far. Uh, the movie is supposed to open in New York and L.A., Stars Media, Stars Entertainment is going to uh, open it in L.A. and New York in uh, January, so we'll see what happens. But uh, you know, it's a pretty, pretty um, um, dismal. The Alamo Draft House, who are our, uh, you know, they've supported us in the past. They've played our movies. They they've turned it down. Uh, Landmark uh, theaters have turned it down. Uh, you know they they're all part of the uh, big uh, the big uh, conglomerates I guess uh, you know the audience is 800 people filled a, a theater at midnight to, and paid you know 15 bucks a pop to see it so I would assume it's pretty good it was shown at Cannes Return to Newcomb High Volume 1 was shown twice at the Cannes Film Festival and there were lines around the block to get in, and uh, people loved it. Um, no, I think it's just uh, we are we have committed the sin of being independent. We're not we're not uh, vassals of the uh, big conglomerates. We're not Juno, twelve million dollar movies made by sons of celebrities. We've committed that sin. You know, we are independent, and we're making movies that. Other people are imitating and then uh, putting in, uh, you know, blowing somebody to get it released on uh, Fox Searchlight, uh, and suddenly they are the brilliant ones. You showed it at Cannes, and I was going to ask, in terms of the business end, are you finding that you're having more interest and more people overseas are interested in the films, or is it just... Uh, Good question. The media, the European media and the Asian media, uh, the mainstream media of Europe and Asia... Uh, paid a lot of attention to Occupy Can, which is the documentary we're making, and Return to Newcomb High. The American media totally ignored it. Are you also finding it's that way with sales as well, that you can get it booked or people are interested overseas but not necessarily here? Oh, no, the whole industry is, uh, is a cartel. It's controlled by... Each country has one or two 
media cartel that's in league with the uh, the media cartel of the United States, and uh, it's a uh, fixed game. And uh, if you're in the club and you want to be part of a you know lapdog, you uh, you might do well for a period of time, but uh, the battlefield is littered with the bodies of dead careers of uh, talented filmmakers. We're still there after 40 years, but uh, we make movies with a small budget, and uh, we're hanging on by our fingernails. Before we talked tonight, you said you were working on um, Return to Newcomb High Volume 2. Was it in the cards to make two films, or is that just sort of how it played out? No, the intention was to try to... Uh, when I was at Sitges, Quentin Tarantino said to try to make... He advised that we should make an event film, you know, some kind of something that stands out because he saw the, you know, with the video, with the democratization of cinema through video, through through the digital revolution, there are so many movies, um, and uh, that uh, we uh, we thought, well, we'll do what he did with Kill Bill, we'll make volume one and volume two, and, you know, it'd be, it's kind of fun to be, you know, we're sort of being pretentious here with a, in the event film, you know, with volume one and volume two for a movie called The Return to Newcomb High. <clears throat> and, um, uh, you know, in the same way that Tarantino uh, did it, we're doing it in the underground. And uh, I, volume two is going to knock your socks off. It's terrific. Volume one is great, but volume two uh, it will really, the fans are going to just go nuts when they see it. It's totally, it's really interesting. It's great. Did you have some uh, people you were working with in terms of the writing and things like that? Well, um, there were three of us who wrote the, the two the screenplays for both of these, but the actors had a lot to do with uh, the taking the screenplay and enhancing it and bringing it up to a level. Uh, uh, Asta Parides and uh, Catherine uh, Cochran, Clay uh, uh, von Karlowitz, Mark Quinnett, uh, Vito, uh, uh, these guys, it's the best cast we ever had. Uh, Babette Bombshell uh, from Florida. They all took what we had written and they did lots of improvising and uh, rewriting. And uh, I mean, this was the best cast we've ever had. And they brought so much to the film from the point of view of wonderful comedy and great ideas and so uh, even though there are three of us credited with a screenplay, the cast itself had a lot to do with uh, bringing the screenplay up to a higher level. Are you still shooting film, or have you gone over to digital? We, we this movie is our first is the first digital movie that I've directed, uh, and it uh, looks really good. We use the Araflex uh, Alexa, and uh, it really looks good. The only problem is the Araflex Alexa is very expensive. So I only had one camera. Usually, I have when I'm when I'm shooting 35 millimeter, I've got three cameras: uh, the Arri BL, the 2C, and the and a, uh, an IMO or some kind of crash camera. And on this movie, uh, basically one camera. So uh, it was uh, kind of a trade-off between the finest camera that one can have, but uh, not so many angles to shoot. That's kind of interesting. I didn't know that that you had shot multiple. I thought usually only for like stunt scenes or something. Well, indeed, for stunts and special effects, the multiple cameras, but also for certain action scenes and uh, 
uh, you know, the Araflex, the 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 um, Araflex BL, the Araflex uh, 2C is lightweight, and you know, you can do a lot of handheld, and so, you know, with poultry guys, a lot of it was shot handheld. The BL and the 2C, I could I could do my own camera work, and uh, uh, there's a style to that movie which I think really pays off. With the uh, with the Alexa, the Araflex Alexa, uh, it's much harder to do. It's a very big camera, and it's uh, almost impossible to do handheld. And um, we had this giant Fisher dolly and Warhol heads, and uh, and it, the the movie looks great. Uh, but uh, I think it could have been a lot more fluid if we had had uh, a second camera and blah blah blah. For release on Volume One and then Volume Two, um, you said right now you're working on festivals and and getting fans to book theaters. Um, Stars Stars is going to put it into uh, put vol- Volume One of Return to Nukemai in New York and L.A. And we are um, tasked with uh, uh, getting the theaters between the two coasts. So that's our fans' job. They did a great with the poultry guys. Our fans ended up getting us about 300 cinemas. So I'm hoping that our fans will be able to help us out on this one. Yeah, that's very cool. The uh, I was going to ask you, do you have any idea on when both of them may come to video? Well, Volume 1 will come out through uh, Anchor Bay in April. I don't... Volume 2, um, we, we haven't even... We just... We still have a little bit of touch-up to do. We have a scene with Joe Flyshaker, you know, the, our um, uh, big fat uh, action hero. Uh, he's in uh, uh, rehab, and we're waiting for him to get a little bit better so we can give him a cameo. Uh, I've got a little more to film with Stan Lee. Uh, uh, so basically, we're finished filming Volume Two. There's just and there's some some uh, special effects that still need to be done, but. Basically, it's finished, and we're editing. We started editing Volume Two. Well, it's sad to hear that Joe's um, in hospital, but hopefully, he'll be better soon. Well, he um, he's gone down from five hundred pounds. He's now down to three hundred and sixteen pounds. Uh, you remember in Toxie, uh, the Citizen Toxie, the Toxic Avenger Part Four, uh, he played Lard Ass. Do you remember that? Yep. He played Toxie's uh, sidekick, kind of a Robin Hood, a hey, Robin. Batman and Robin, sort of uh, his ward and sidekick, Lardass. Uh, if if uh, Joe is planning to get down to 250, in which case from he'll, he won't be called Lardass, he'll be called uh, uh, Half-Ass. So um, uh, we're hoping that uh, we'll be able to work with him in the not-too-distant future and uh, he'll appear. The, the Return to Newcomb High, Volume 1 and Volume 2, is sort of a reunion film. Uh, almost all the Troma celebrities are in it. Uh, everyone from Lemmy to Ron Jeremy to Dan Snow, who played Cigar Face in the first uh, Toxic Avenger. Uh, uh, Lisa Gay, who was in Newcomb High Parts 2 and 3 uh, and Toxic Avenger 2 and 3. Lisa Rowland, who was the star of Nuke, Subhumanoid Malcolm, Meltdown Toxic, uh, Newcomb High Part 2. Lisa Rowland, the Subhumanoid Meltdown. Brick Bronsky, who starred in Subhumanoid Meltdown and The Good, The Bad, and The Subhumanoid, uh, Newcomb High Parts 2 and 3. Uh, they're all sorts of wonderful, uh, uh, it's a reunion film. Uh, you'll see uh, Bob, uh, uh, the, the guy who played uh, Sluggo and uh, 
and um, the main Cretan in Newcomb High, who, who played Slug in Toxie One, <coughs> Robert Pritchard, he's in the movie. Uh, I mean, it, you, you'll see, it's a really reunion movie. Uh, Lemmy, Ron Jeremy, uh, Stanley, of course, uh, all sorts of interesting people are in this movie. Ooh. Who have been in trauma movies over the years, so it's yeah. a very fine reunion movie. Yeah, that's great because you know I'm a, a fan of that of, of the work, and it's it's great to see the people pop back up, and it's like hanging out with old friends again. Yeah, and it's a very similar to Andy Warhol, who had his own, you know, Andy Warhol superstars. Uh, uh, I I was a big uh, fan of Andy Warhol, and I hung out at the factory, and the the trauma stars are sort of in that, you know, they're very much inspired by Andy's uh, stable of uh, characters. They weren't real actors. They were personalities who Andy felt were interesting on film. And I've sort of gone up the same path. Just my taste is obviously very different from Andy Warhol's. On the video aspect for that, it's interesting that, you know, you're not releasing it, that you were able to put a deal together with Anchor Bay. That's kind of new. Yeah, well, a lot of the young people who work for us or who were trauma fans, you know, after 40 years, a lot of them have moved up the food chain. And Kevin Kasha, who's a big shot at Stars, he um, he loved the return. He loved the, the original class of Nukemai, and he suggested that uh, why don't we think about uh, revisiting, you know, do a revisiting or a, uh, a, a rebooting of Class of Newcomb High, and we have done it. Except that uh, instead of Chrissy and Warren, instead of a boy and a girl as the romantic leads and the heroes, we have uh, two lesbians as the. We have instead of Chrissy and Warren, we have Chrissy and Lauren, and I think it's the first movie of this kind that has lesbians as uh, you know, same that have. Uh, same-sex uh, lovers as the, the heroes, but will be ignored by the main media. And then, uh, you know, five years from now, Harvey Weinstein will make a youth or, you know, a youth oriented uh, movie like this and he'll get all the credit. With them putting this out, I was going to ask, has there been any interest in taking the original class of Newcomb high or the first uh, toxic Avenger and, you know, doing a restoration and, and putting it out really nice. You know, have you had any interest? Uh, has anyone talked to you about that kind of stuff? Well, Akiva Goldsman, who's a big time Hollywood producer is allegedly making a big budget remake of the toxic Avenger and, and vivid wants to do a porno a remake of the toxic Avenger. But I don't know about restoring it. I think the the Library of Congress recently contacted me to get my and and the Museum of Modern Art both are interested in my archives and you know and the Library of Congress wants to you know restore our negatives and keep them safe and all that. So there's some interest there, but that's not going to put food on the table. Yeah. Because I was just wondering if if that was going to happen. Because I just um, I just picked up a copy of the Japanese cut, which I enjoyed. It was a oh thank a, you yeah it was a new experience for me because I'm so used to watching your uh, extended director's cut of Toxie, and I really enjoyed the Japanese cut. Oh great, uh, uh, yeah it's a, it's done very well on uh, DVD. It's pretty interesting. I mean it's in you know it's in English, but that's you know and they obviously put it out with Japanese uh, dubbing, but. Um, and I think it's I think it's being re-released in Japan uh, by a small company. I was, gonna, 
I think the Toxic Avenger and uh, um, Class of Nukem High are both being re-released in Japan and Germany by very good independent distributors. Do you know about that cut? Did you put that cut together, or did someone in Japan put that edit together? Uh, no, we did it. In order to in order to sell it to Japan, uh, we had to come up with a 95-minute negative. So we, we created that. And then we found a distributor for the uh, Japanese version. You did mention the um, the Hollywood supposed Hollywood reboot of Toxic Avenger. Do you know what the status is on that? Is it languishing in development hell, or will it actually happen? Well, they um, it's had its ups and downs. The first day of Cannes Film Festival, Variety and Hollywood Reporter both had front page stories that the producers had signed Arnold Schwarzenegger to the play a major part in the in Stephen Pink's remake and um, indeed Schwarzenegger had signed but then apparently he had his fingers crossed and he's no longer he's doing uh, something like the Terminator remake or something so he's gone and now um, they're looking for somebody else they're talking to Bruce Willis right now so uh, apparently he's very interested I, again I, I'm the wrong guy to talk to because I'm getting everything kind of second hand um, I also heard they signed the young boy from Hugo, uh, I, I guess, to play Little Melvin. But I sh- really shouldn't be saying anything because we really don't know. You know, all, all we know is that Akiva Goldsman and Richard uh, Saperstein are, um, and Stephen Pink, who wrote the script, he's the guy who did uh, High Fidelity and Hot Tub Time Machine and uh, Gross Point. Uh, he's a very good writer director. Stephen Pink is a big trauma fan and incredibly talented and, you know, he gets it. And uh, if they make this film, I think it'll be pretty good. I just hope they get it together and pay us a lot of money so we can keep going. We're, meanwhile, writing the fifth Toxic Avenger and uh, still trying to get a decent script together. We've been working on that for five years and getting nowhere. But I think we've got the right the right direction finally do they have a um on the deal do they have like a set amount of time to get it and then you get the rights back or how does that kind of work uh, we already we we we're the contract has long expired but we're you know we like them and we're we're not going to anybody else sounds good well, you brought up uh, occupy can and uh, just wanted to say i'm a proud backer of occupy can oh thank you so and, much uh, are you getting updates yeah, yeah, the updates have been great. Have you seen chill.com where the updates get posted and uh, uh, chill, dot com? Have you, by any chance, been able to go there and see the updates? Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, you know, maybe go there and check it out. I was... we, just, we just put up uh, something, uh, you know, we, we well, hopefully you're automatically getting them since you're a backer. Do you get an email with the the latest updates yeah i was just hoping that you could kind of explain what occupy can is for those who aren't hip well we made a documentary 10 years ago called all the love you can which deals with sort of trauma as the case study of a independent company and how we're treated and um and how we operated can and we thought it would be interesting to do a follow-up 10 years later using trauma and return to newcomb high volume one as sort of the centerpiece and uh, chronicle how is independent art 
treated at Cannes Film Festival and in the industry uh, uh, 10 years later. And we didn't have the money to, to, to do it. We had some of the money, but we needed our fans to raise some of the money. And our fans came through with a, a good part of the budget. And uh, now we need to get some grants or something to finish it. But we've pretty much shot it. But we're going to need some help to uh, finish it. And we probably have to go back to Cannes next year and film a little more. And hopefully we'll get some. We're not going to, I don't think we're going to bother our fans again, but uh, we're going to try to get some grants. It's a very worthy project, and it's really interesting. Uh, we've got all sorts of interviews from from the guy who runs the MPAA to uh, Claude Van Damme to you know all sorts of people that uh, talk about independent uh, art versus the uh, mainstream. And uh, Cannes is a good uh, centerpiece for that. Uh, and Return to Newcomb High is a good uh, centerpiece for the centerpiece. As for myself, and you know this, I was, you know, proud to go there in 99 with you guys and, and sort of see it firsthand what you guys go through at Cannes. It was just uh, one of the most memorable weeks of my life. Well, the year, those years were um, incredibly uh, seminal uh, uh, because so many young people were inspired by how you and we uh, operated at Cannes, that they have tried to go there and, you know, do the uh, same sort of subversive street theater and uh, demonstrations and all that kind of stuff. So I think, uh, you know, you and we set an interesting standard for young, new talent to go to Cannes and try to fight a little bit rather than just kissing ass. Well, I know it's been a long day for you and you were, you know, working on the film earlier today. So, um, I just want to thank you for your time, Lloyd. And it's, it's great to, uh, to catch up with you after, you know, I haven't heard from you in about a year and a half, but it's okay. Well, thank you, Robert. Well, keep in touch. And, uh, should you be in New York, I hope you'll come visit Tromaville and, uh, the best thing would be, uh, maybe you can find a reasonably decent theater in, uh, in uh, Aspen and uh, maybe I can get my ass out there and we could spend a little time together and you could curate, you know, present the movie and, uh, and uh, we'll have a good time. And the fans who are, I know we have a lot of fans in Colorado, especially in Aspen because I get a lot of uh, Twitter from uh, Aspen. So uh, maybe uh, see what you can put together. Maybe it's a university. Uh, I could do a make your own damn movie masterclass and show the movie also, uh, you know, see what uh, see what's out there. You know, maybe you get the word out, and you never know. You know, I personally, and also the Projection Booth podcast has always been a supporter, and we've always backed you and tried to push truly independent art and trauma. So that's a word about. Well, thanks again, and uh, please thank all the trauma fans. And if anybody wants to talk to me, I'm at uh, uh, at Lloyd Kaufman on Twitter and. I do all my own Twitters. I, I do. I answer everything on Twitter. I don't do much on Facebook, but my Twitter streams to the Facebook. But if anybody wants to talk to me, Twitter's the place. Or the fan site, uh, LloydKaufman.com. I answer all that. Well, they the fans send me uh, the communications from the LloydKaufman.com website, and I do answer all that. But Twitter's faster if you want to talk to me. Or ask me anything. Sounds good. Like thanks. I said, just just thanks again. You know, it's it's great talking to you. And uh, well, thank you, Robert, and forgive me for uh, being so tardy. I totally lost track of the time. <laughs>
That's okay. You know, I'm I'm more looking out for you. It's eleven o'clock on the East Coast, so. <laughs> well, thanks again, and let's keep in touch. And uh, best wishes to your fans and uh, to the trauma fans who've kept us going for forty years. So I will uh, sign off and uh, just say that Toxie uh, loves uh, Colorado. And uh, tell tell the missus I say hi and all the best to everyone back in uh, Tromaville. Cool. I will tell the commissioner that uh, you uh, love her. Thank you. Thanks Thanks to Lloyd Kaufman for coming on the show again. Also, I want to apologize to Lloyd for bringing this up and forcing him to talk about it. He, He doesn't really like to talk about it. I think he just kind of wrote about it in the book and kind of left it as that. As you heard in the interview, I did apologize to him several times. But anyway, I think it's still a pretty good story. You can find out more about Lloyd's work and, of course, our previous episodes on various trauma films over at our website, projection-booth.com. So we're back. We're talking about Big Gus, What's the Fuss? Or as I would rather like to call it, Schwartz the Brave Detective. Is that the actual um, uh, translation on the title? Yeah, yeah, of course. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually a play would... on the name of a famous play. Uh, uh, the fam- uh, what is it? Um, Schweik, the brave soldier Schweik is a very famous play, a Czech play originally that was very famous in Israel. And this is the brave detective Schwartz. You know. So there's no Gus in this film at all, though, right? Well, the thing is, this movie, we all saw it in Hebrew, you guys too. And apparently they originally paid for an English-speaking version as well, uh, which is apparently lost. From what I understand... Lloyd says there's a there's a print that he never got, and I think he means the English language print of the film, which might exist in Israel somewhere, might be locked away in some vault. And I don't know if it's I mean if it's if it's the same cast, it's probably just dubbed into English. Um, but again, I'm just guessing here. I have no idea if it really exists. But maybe there's a Gus there. Maybe his name was Gus in English. The um, the various write-ups that I read wants to call. Schwartz, Gus, but there's never a mention of the name Gus in the entire film. That's it's why such I think a complete other... non sequitur. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, <laughs> kind of fits with it though. I was talking to Rob about just the way that the film is kind of put together or not put together, and I think I I compared it to Manos a little bit just because <laughs> it feels really roughly edited. You know, like the scene when they're in the motorbike and they're coming up on that painting that you know they're going to go through that painting oh, as the God, two guys yeah. are carrying it across the road oh, no. and you don't really get the shot of them like going up to it you just kind of get them already through it and it's like oh okay there's a lot of like persistence of plot kind of things where you're like okay i assume that this is what happened yeah that's something else uh, actually worth mentioning the, uh, the editing was really atrocious throughout many times but actually did you know that the guy who edited it was uh Nominated for an Oscar later on. No, uh, wow. I just looked it yeah. up on IMDb. It's Dov Hennig. And apparently he went on to a Hollywood career. And in 1993, he was nominated for as one of the six editors of The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. Huh. But I guess he picked up his chops later or something because the editing is unbelievably bad in parts. Oh, I mean, there's just weird jump cuts and I have no idea what's happening. Yeah, there's a lot of those. I was talking about that dinner scene. There's a lot of those in there. Like, all of a sudden, the woman's got the hairpiece from the old lady, and it's like, what? When did this happen? I didn't see this happen at all. Also, that opening. Like, the opening with all of them in bed. 
It's yeah. just the oddest staging. And oh, like, right. I remember now. It, and it moving. goes back in time. We, 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 we were debating ourselves during watching the film because there's this big alarm clock scene with everybody waking up in their beds. And then later, this, again with alarm clocks, but it's the same day. And we couldn't figure out if it's a fractured timeline where they went back to the same day or if it's the next day and everything is repeating itself like Groundhog Day or something. We couldn't figure it out. It seemed to me that Simka had all those alarm clocks, but even though even though he did, he couldn't get up on time or something, and I don't know. And then we had that the woman that he wakes up and says that she has to go to the hospital, and she disappears for like an hour or so, and then finally shows back up with Max the Swede and has that montage. But it's like, what happened to her? Who? What? What does she play in this? She so. was mentioned like she was. She worked at the hospital. And she she got them into the hospital because she's a nurse there, even though he didn't see her. And then later, when she shows up again, it's a, it's the hospital again, I think. And they're watching them in the, watching the doctor in the hospital again, who's cheating with the wife. I don't know. For such an inco- incoherent movie, it's really much too much too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, that opening, the uh, getting out of bed, is I, I remember just shaking my head like what with uh, okay Schwartz gets out of bed. He does like some jumping jacks and running, and then he leaps over the bed, over his wife, gets back in bed, and goes back to bed. Right. And then he still gets up somehow and kisses his little daughter on the head where everybody cringed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's one of those – it's up for grabs. What, any, what the hell happens at any given point? See, and, and that's part of the reason why I thought you might like it because American Hippie is so weird. Well, I don't know. Look, it, 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 part of the magic of American Hippie is just how it works with an audience. And uh, I've done one screening of this movie, of, of, of Schwartz, and I've had walkouts. I've never had walkouts with, with American Hippie. So that's, that tells you something right away. American, it's definitely, you know, it's not just a... Being bad is not the point. You know, it could be bad or not bad. But um, we, we just had a screening of American Hippie uh, last night, so it's fresh in my memory. And it really, it was a terrific screening. There's something about that damn movie. I mean, it's incoherent, but it's it's somehow mesmerizing to people where they they can't stop watching and trying to figure it out. It's people are fascinated by it. Well, it's trying to say something, man. It's trying to <laughs> talk about buttons. <laughs> just keeps pushing buttons. It's. I think it's trying to say something and, and succeeding in saying something completely different that nobody can quite <laughs> put into words. So you had a screening of uh, Schwartz or Big Gus, whatever. And talked a little bit about it at the top, but what were some of the reactions that people said to you afterwards? The ones who stuck stuck around. It exactly. Yeah, we were all pretty gobsmacked. Even during the film, we were really laughing our heads off at, at first uh, with the first half, with the exposition of all the different characters and the you know all the seventies atmosphere, the music, uh, a little bit of the slapstick chases at first were pretty fun. Um, the weird editing was fun. Um, it started to grate a little bit towards the end where it's just a bunch of Benny Hill chases and nothing makes sense anymore. Um, but, uh, yeah, actually to tell you the truth, we, uh, some people, as I said, walked out in the middle and the ones who stuck around left immediately in the end and the, and the couple of people who were left, uh, we just had to watch another movie to just cleanse our palates and watch something else that's put together in a competent way. Oh, man. So you needed a lemon sorbet after this. To <laughs> exactly. <palate>. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, that's right. Uh, but so, again, I, I don't want to be too hard about this movie. You know, uh, I, I, there was one person that really liked it. Now that, I, now that I think of it, 
there was one person who genuinely enjoyed herself and laughed and said it wasn't so bad after all. So there's that too. So did the uh, Mein Kampf line bring him in? <laughs> Everybody I told the Mein Kampf line immediately said, I got to watch this. Was it on the poster? Did you put that on the, the flyer for it? Uh, no, but in the description for the thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't sure if you were able to advertise that in Israel. Just a little bit on Facebook and kind of thing. You know, it was only a few days. More ahead. damage than Mein Kampf. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if there's one, the, Israeli people love Holocaust humor. You can, uh, as long as Israeli people or Jewish people are doing it, then it's great. You, they don't appreciate it if it's somebody else doing it. But Israeli people make Holocaust jokes all the time. <laughs> oh man I'm not even going to touch that one no <laughs> as well you shouldn't you heard the interview with Lloyd and just the baggage that he still has about it and the one thing like we talked offline before the show where you're like is he serious about this about the fact that he said that his employees snuck this out there onto the internet to embarrass him I mean come on right yeah, I mean, he's supposed to be the president of the company, right? I don't know what kind of dynamic they have there where they play pranks on each other and release, release uh, his long-lost turkey as, a, as an Easter egg in some other DVD. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's sad. Look, I'm it's not true. sure what it is. I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure what their dynamic is over there. Yeah, definitely some shenanigans going on. But if that's true, I don't know. I'm kind of like... I'm kind of glad that they did but at the same time i feel bad for lloyd it was like listening to that interview was slightly painful at times just because it felt like rob was just tearing wound tearing scabs off of old wounds left and right yeah and also he said uh, i don't know if you kept it in but he said that he also was swindled and he in some real estate deal so he was he thinks that he feels that he was legitimately just cheated by people like he was victimized by somebody who stole his money, basically. It just seems like um, he, had a, he had a bad run in Israel between this film and like two other business deals, as he explains in the interview. I'm like, really? I'm like, wow. But actually, you know, if I don't know if this is worth pursuing further. I mean, <laughs> now that you've seen it, but maybe the real lost holy grail is the English version of Big Gus, What's the Fuss, which apparently is in existence in somebody's vault in Israel. And Lloyd Kaufman never got it, even though he paid for it. Well, I think that that would be something worthwhile to track down. Um, I, I'll, I'll look into it. I'll, I'll, I'll at least uh, do some inquiries and see if anything comes up. Was there anyone who showed up for the screening who was a completist because they were such a big fan of any of these Israeli actors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people came who, uh, uh, for instance, like I said, Uri Zohar uh, is huge and people are completists of his movies. But actually, this movie was released in Israel, finally. It was also lost in Israel for many years, but now it's available on DVD in Israel. With English subtitles? Uh, no, just uh, as is. Just in Hebrew. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering if the translation was any better, because our subtitles were kind of weird at times. The opening song, especially. Oh, the, the lyrics for the song were translated? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was the line that I quoted up top where I said about the, the birds flying out of the antennas. I was wondering about that. I'll have to, have to look into that. Maybe, maybe I'll give it a listen and, and uh, talk to you again. I, we should have watched it with the English subtitles, I guess. I didn't realize it would, would be an important element. Well, one thing that's good is that with Troma putting so much of their stuff out on YouTube, you can go out and check it out for free, which is great. Right, and if you manage to stick with it all the way to the end, then you deserve some kind of medal. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you can pay a dollar for it like I did on the uh, Troma site for streaming. So there you go. <laughs> Isn't that even worse? Like you, you only gave him a dollar? <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Oh, I can't hear that without thinking about that guy melting from the nuclear waste later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. I was traumatized by that movie when I was 10. I guess in this anniversary year for Trauma, that'd be 2014 is the 40th anniversary, uh, we will not be celebrating Big Gus What's the Fuss, but uh, I think we should at least celebrate Trauma. You know, congratulations on 40 years in business there, Lloyd. Mazel tov. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Chosen ones, the gun is good. The gun is good. Go forth and kill. Who came here in the stone head? I don't know. It is the only path and passage into the vortex. You will show me how you come to be here. Tell me everything. My name is Zed. Bozandas, I am an exterminator. That's right, we are back next week with the 1974 cult sci-fi classic Zardoz. Joining us will be our frequent co-host Josh Johnson to talk about the film. 
We want to thank this week's special guest, Lloyd Kaufman, for coming on the show. Also, our guest co-host, Yaniv Edelstein. Thanks for stopping by. What's the latest with you? Um, you know, I picked up the American Hippie in Israel on Blu-ray, and it, I was very pleased to see that. It was great to have that finally come out in the U.S. So what's been going on with that one for you? Did you check out, check out all the extras on that one? Indeed, I did. Yeah, I'm, I, I, you, I did some of those extras for, for Bob from Grindhouse, and I appear there for like a few seconds. You can see me. Um, it's great. Uh, you know, Bob from Grindhouse, Bob, Bob Morawski, have been working on, on that release for over 10 years, and he put together a really amazing three-disc set. It's actually, ironically, probably one of the best home video releases any Israeli movie ever got, which everybody over here is pretty shocked by. Uh, that you know, there's a there's a, there's a movie industry here. There's some masterpieces. There's some good movies coming, but the, this turkey is the one that gets the big giant American release. Um, but yeah, it's very exciting. It's a terrific uh, it's a terrific edition. We are carrying on with the with the monthly screening over here in Tel Aviv, and in Haifa, at least a few a few cities, we're having having screenings of this movie, and it's going uh, better than ever. Three years in. <laughs> Three years in and counting with this uh, with this phenomenon that seems to have no end, no end in sight. New people showing up all the time. Um, as I said, we had a screening last night, a, mid a midnight screening, and as always, it's a good mix, like probably a half and half mix of uh, veterans who return again and again, and uh, virgins or new arrivals who are. You can always tell. You can hear the ones gasping in disbelief at just uh, some of these scenes. And laughing at some of the jokes that we make, because obviously those are we have we're ha we have very loud loud screenings with lots of jokes. Since we last spoke, I've been to L.A. I met Bob Morawski personally for the first time, and attending attended a screening of Hippie. It was actually a double bill of uh, American Hippie in Israel and um, Gone with the Pope, and in, in the New Beverly Cinema. And so it was a double a double whammy of uh, weirdness from the '70s. It was great. So how did it go over with a U.S. audience? Um, it's, uh, there's differences in some of it, but it definitely, it works. This movie just really works everywhere. I've seen it, you know, so all right, all, by now I've seen it in Israel and a few cities. I've seen it in Berlin and in Mannheim in Germany where I was, uh, invited to screen it. And I saw it in LA and everywhere that people watch it for the first time, because it is a cult thing that people watch over and over, but everywhere people watch it for the first time, they're immediately, uh, how shall I say? Uh, entranced by it. People just are fascinated by this movie. And it doesn't matter that it's the first time they're seeing it. Um, it's, it's, it's a movie that's just wrong and doesn't make sense in very delicious ways. Uh, people just sit there and uh, watch it in disbelief. The, the one scene that's interesting is that's different in, in the U.S. with an American audience is the I just, I just don't get you man scene where they just sit for four minutes and don't understand each other. Uh, because uh, I never thought of it before, but in America, they only understand what Mike is saying, and they don't understand the other guy. Right. In Israel, everybody understands both of them. You understand that they don't understand each other, but at least you know what they're saying. So in America, Mike says, I don't get you, and then Cuomo starts talking, and he just talks for like 10 seconds, and everybody falls quiet, and then it goes back to Mike, and everybody's like, okay, so explain to us what just happened. And Mike just says, I don't get you. I don't get you, man. Um, so in, in Israel, it plays out with laughter, wall to wall laughter in the U S it's just, uh, intermittent laughter. It just, they laugh every time it goes back to Mike. 
Well, maybe you need to import some of that beer that you've created. Can you explain that? Oh, well, we 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 launched <laughs> we launched an American hippie beer last screening. It was a great success, and we uh, we actually had two beers uh, yesterday: a stout and a, and an ale uh, to serve our audience. Uh, we're not supposed to talk about it, but I guess it's an American podcast. So who's going to hear uh, over here? And uh, obviously, it's a movie that's it's an experience that's better with some substances. So uh, why not help? Why not help the ticket buying audience with a little refreshment? Which was the stout? And which was the ale? We had a Hippie Mike ale and a Como stout, sure to be collectors' items, um, <laughs> and they were both delicious. And of course, Como was in attendance. Shmuel Wolf himself is a, he attends all our screenings, so he got to drink some of his namesake beer. Actually, I was also, because it was our three-year anniversary, I did a little push in uh, papers, blogs, and even TV in the past week. I was interviewed with Shmuel Wolf on Israeli TV, um, talking about the film. Uh, he was there with me. He was hilarious. Actually, I'll, uh, I haven't subtitled it into English yet, but I think I'll subtitle it into English maybe, and, and it'll, the link can go up with the podcast of, uh, of Shmuel Wolf. And I talking uh, on Israeli national TV about about American hippie in Israel. Very cool. Would love to have that. You know, going back to the phenomena that is American hippie, and as you were saying, being on TV and in the press, people going, "Why does this film get all the attention when we've got other stuff going on?" Do you think it's just because it has sort of crossed over to here, and there are people that know about it here? Because to be honest. Have to, you know, I'm I'm a film guy, and I don't know a whole lot of Israeli film that's been released into the states. Uh, well, there's been it's been happening recently, just with sort of art house stuff, um, and and even a little more commercial stuff. There's actually a movie called um, Big Bad Wolves. Have you heard about it? I have not. No. Uh, it's it's getting it's it, it's um, it was made by some guys I know and actually has a huge buzz and was uh, purchased for release. It has big buzz because Tarantino said it was the best film of 2013. So um, and it's a and it's a horror movie. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Uh, so look into that. Um, it's been happening more and more. I mean, I can give you lots of examples of things that are happening. Um, I, did you mean more recent films being released now or, or all over history? I just think sort of in general. I mean, I think we talked maybe a little bit about this on the American Hippie episode. It seems that the only time we get anything that's out of that area, it's always related to the Israeli-Palestinian issue or some sort right, of right. You know, larger political uh, issue and that's it like we get the important film and it's usually one about every five years but beyond yeah. that we don't know anything else it's like oh that's all you guys make over there right well israel hasn't historically made genre films so you'd get a lot of art house cinema and you get dramas and yes you'd get a war movie and stuff like that recently it's it's been a little bit of a revolution happening with genre films being made uh it's a new thing happening so I would recommend this film called Big Bad Wolves. Uh, I would recommend that you check it out. I think it's may have, I mean, I, I know it played uh, some festivals in, in the U.S., but it's going to get a commercial release. You should look into a movie called Lebanon, which has an off-putting title, but it's actually, it's a war movie, but it's a great war movie because it's like the Das Boat of tank movies. The whole movie takes place inside the tank. And uh, I, my take on the movie is that it's a terrific exploitation slash war film, like a, 
something Brian De Palma would make or something like that, like really violent and really, really claustrophobic. Those are like a couple of my favorites from, from recent years. Um, but definitely like you guys, uh, if you'd like to maybe look into more stuff later on, either recent or from the seventies or something, I could give you some ideas and some, maybe some links. Uh, I know that Mike, one of the things that we, uh, I know that <laughs> you did it to spite somebody else, but I did send you some really rare Israeli movies way back then, way back when. Yeah, I I probably still have them around. One of them is a, one of the really one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. It's a Message from the Future. If you still have that, have a look at that because that is one weird movie. It's in English. It's futuristic. It was made by this. Actually, it was made. You know by who? By the by the real life husband. Of the of Elizabeth from American Hippie, the one of the two girls, oh. her husband in real life is this, was a very famous guy who was a futurist, a science fiction guy, and a poet. And he made this one movie, and it's this bizarre, bizarre movie, Message from the Future or Transmission from the Future, which is really one a completely out of left field. There's aliens, there's world leaders like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan played by actors. There's Isaac Asimov as a character in it. There's sex and nudity and orgies. I can't even I can't even start to tell you how weird this movie is. It sounds like you have a replacement when American Hippie starts flagging. Here's your next film. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's not flagging anytime soon. But uh yeah. At least we it, I think it's fodder for at least a podcast. If you want to do weird stuff that nobody's seen then uh, it's a good it's a good uh, good uh, candidate. Sometimes that's just what the doctor ordered. There you go. All right. We want to thank you for listening and, you know, do us a favor. Feel free to head over to the website, projection-booth.com, click on the donate button, and you can send us a couple of bucks via PayPal in return for all the quality shows you get each and every week, the 140, almost 150 episodes that we've done. And, of course, you can always listen through iTunes, Stitcher, in our brand new app. It doesn't cost you a dime. That's why we ask you for the donation for your smartphone, be it iPhone, Android, or your iPad, or Kindle Fire. And of course, because it is the new year, all the best to you for 2014 and beyond.
anything to ridicule me, anything to make me look foolish. Go look at the Morton Downey thing. They put that up, you know, anything, right? And Big Gus, how, what a terrible, that, that's a horrible movie. 